This is the Stories with Stein Bearcat Fan Podcast, episode 106. As always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Jeff Gentle, and we have a very special guest who has returned for, I believe, the third time. He is known locally as the William Shakespeare of Cincinnati sports writing, the athletics, Justin Williams. Justin, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today. That is very, very high praise. Uh, I don't think anyone actually calls me that, but I appreciate you you getting that going. Um, and, and I appreciate the the intro, and I'm happy to be here with you guys. I think you should edit all of your all of your biographical information for all from the athletic and any other social media sites to indicate that quote, so it catches on and it's just a thing from now on. Um, next Halloween, you could dress up like William Shakespeare, and it'll just take off uh, like a rocket. Oh yeah, everybody will know who we've dressed as too. All right, well. I just want to jump right into the to basketball. Obviously, last night was the long-awaited season opener and the return of fans to Fifth Third Arena. Jeff, I do, you were there for the first half, and Justin, you were there for, I think, the entire game and probably the post-game stuff. Jeff, just give me what your mm-hmm. thoughts were getting to the arena for the first time probably since the, 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 the regular season finale back in March of 20 against Temple with the trace got put back to secure the number one seed in the American Conference Tournament. Could you just tell me a little bit about what you felt going into the arena and parking and going to your seat and, and everything that's leading up to that. Well, aren't, aren't we all supposed to contractually just say that we're fired up? Is that how we're supposed to describe <laughs> it? Like, nobody else is allowed to say anything. I mean, that, that's the, it's the perfect description. Uh, I, I, yeah, I was only able to go for, a, for the first half. Barely made tip-off. Uh, there was a, you know, I guess they had still the, the digital ticketing issue outside still, but I, I was able to make it in and you know, just from the tip, it just seemed like a different program. And, you know, like like we were talking last time with, with uh, Mike Saunders Sr., we, we do not need to delve back into the uh, debacle of the last two years. But it just it felt new. It felt fresh. I don't know about you, Justin, but it, it, it definitely felt like a different atmosphere, a different program altogether, don't you think? Oh, I mean, definitely. And it was just, you know, obviously for a lot of people, like you mentioned, Brett, and, and with you, Jeff, it was their first time being there, um, you know, since, what, March 2020, and, and certainly their first time being there in kind of a normal environment if they were able to, to come at all last season. Uh, and that was the biggest difference for me is, like, you know, we <laughs> Chad and I were joking because they put us in the in the fancy loge boxes like the the high roller seats last year uh, for for media because those fans weren't there and they were trying to keep us kind of away from the floor. So, you know, th- that would be the lone disappointment is they're never going to let mm-hmm. us anywhere close to those seats again. Um, but, like, you know, we couldn't go on the floor before games. You know, we, we couldn't do in-person post-game interviews or anything like that last year. So getting all of that back this season, being able to get on the floor a little bit, uh, you know, a couple hours before the game and being able to actually talk to Wes Miller and, and a couple of the players uh, after the game last night, like, you know, as much as the, the fans obviously w- w- was the biggest deal, just from a media perspective, it was like really nice to have, you know, that aspect of it back. For sure. I think just watching the players on the court, um, the emotion, you know, of guys like Davenport and Madsen and, and Mikey Saunders, and then you have kind of more of a, a collected uh, presence from guys like Micah Adams-Woods and David DeJulius that are two of the more uh, senior players on the team. Just from watching myself, I really got the sense that this team really cares about one another. I was really impressed with, I think, was a 15-16 to 16 assist game versus nine turnovers. You know, so often the last couple of seasons the team struggled with turnovers. So seeing that was a was really nice. 
Uh, you know, always stuff to work on. It's one game. The free throw shooting was a bit uh, rough to watch. Also, quite a few offensive rebounds that didn't quite land in, in players' hands properly as they, they kind of adjusted that. And you saw us, you know, double big lineups out there and kind of just seeing substitution patterns, things like that. Everyone played, all but one scholarship player scored. And I think I can speak for everybody when the most pleasant surprise was, was certainly Victor Lockett. I mean, he came in much more of a rebounding presence and defensive presence than I expected, and he didn't didn't seem like the game was too fast for him. He seemed very, very composed when he had the ball in his hands, didn't get overwhelmed on the defensive end. I was really impressed with him, and I just think once the jitters kind of wore off, you started to see the team settle in, the switching, the man-to-man, the depth, the size up front, defending the rim uh, were all big changes that I saw. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know, the way Wes talked after the game, like he was a little disappointed in their their rebounding and, you know, he thought their defensive rotations could have been a little bit better. But I think for myself and for a lot of fans, they're probably, you know, if they weren't beholden to the Wes Miller standard, they were kind of comparing to like, especially last year, what they saw from from the team. And, you know, I, the shot blocking was and rim protection in general was, was the most striking difference. But I, you know, I thought their defensive rotations looked pretty good. Um, yeah, there were a couple, especially on the offensive glass, seemed like balls they had a chance to get. But I don't think, you know, they won the rebounding battle. And I don't think they allowed any second chance points. So nope. it, it's yeah. it's interesting to see. I get, you know, where Wes Miller is coming from. He has his standard. Um, but I think for a, a lot of people, it was like, you know, we already saw at least a glimpse, like you said first game small sample size but a glimpse of like the some of the differences that, that, that this team this roster could have this season yeah it, it seems like they are going to be at least this team with the way the roster is put together uh it looks like a defense first type of team they don't look like they're going to be able to light up the scoreboard too much now obviously you've seen one time out but you know if that's the defensive effort they're going to get every night i mean he's he's already be loved by Bearcat fans anyway, but if they're going to play defense like that, like Huggins, like Cronin, I mean, sky's the limit for, for not only the program, but but uh, his popularity. I don't know if he really cares about that, but, you know, the, the guy's already kissing babies and, and seems to be doing everything right so far. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think when he brought in the players he did from the portal, I think I saw something, correct me if I'm wrong, they have the fifth or sixth oldest roster based on age. You know, Abdul Addo is, you know, this will be his sixth year. He's a, he's a mm-hmm. you know, he, he played five years, in, uh, he was in college five years, redshirted one year, played four years in Mississippi State, played 131 career games, and Hayden Koval has played four full seasons of college basketball. So that, that presence and leadership and maturity I think really rubs off on someone like Victor Locken who's you know been here for a year and a half this is his first college action um there's no scholarship true freshman on the roster everyone that played last night has played on a college game before and I think that's something they can kind of hang their hat on a little bit and you know Justin when you were watching the team and obviously Mike Adams would start a point guard I, I think I really noticed the comfort level for David DeJulius playing off the ball but still not trying to do too much and still impacting the game, scoring, rebounding, and distributing the ball, even though he wasn't the, the primary ball handler. That, that was a very pleasant surprise to me. And I would also just mention as well, you know, I, th- I think my concern was maybe Davenport might feel the need to take a lot of shots, you know, after he played the way he played last year. But that wasn't the case. It seemed like everyone kind of got shots and they shared the ball and distributed it very well compared to, you know, since half the roster was here for last year and half the guys are new. 
Yeah, no, you know, on, on to Julius first, I totally agree. I, you know, I think I think that's something Wes and his staff realized. You know, I remember when he first took the job, him telling me, like, he went back and watched a bunch of uh, Michigan clips of David. And, and, you know, I think they really felt David was best served off the ball. And, you know, he did some of that last year, too. Uh, so it's not like it was a, a complete shift for him. Um, but I think just, you know, kind of starting him and, and – defining him in that off the ball role uh was a big deal and, and the other thing you know you saw it a couple times with david you saw it a couple times with jeremiah davenport too you know one of the you know tenets of west miller offense is like there's a few guys where if you get the ball you get a rebound you're allowed to go you know i remember one time last night jeremiah davenport got a rebound and brought it up and that's something i haven't seen a ton of practices but some of the practices i've been at you know west will say like hey if you get it you can do it or you know if, if this guy you know gets a rebound or gets an outlet you're allowed to take it um and so i, I think we saw some of that um you know you mentioned the you know D- davenport shooting again first game it just felt like they're you know coming out of a timeout like if west miller wants to get a guy an open three-point shot like he's just gonna draw it up we, we saw a handful of those last night so uh, i'm kind of interested to see i know he's a, a def- defense first guy and that was clear last night but i think there's some interesting potential in in his offense and and i'm kind of curious to see how this this team grows and develops on that end too do you think he's going to bring a lot of carolina from the offense uh, standpoint because like i I, admittedly i'm a carolina guy like that's my second team always has been so i'm very familiar with west and i noticed a lot of a lot of backdoor they got they got some some really good looks some dunks at the rim for from uh, backdoor cuts, I'm sure he's got, you know, some Carolina from Roy and and uh, you know, as powerful as their offense has been over the you know last couple of decades, um, as as I would say, the roster probably gets more a little bit more offensively talented, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. And you know, I mean, you could, which I, I wrote in that that piece this week, like a lot of Wes's coaching philosophy on off the floor is is Roy Williams influence and he's made some of it his own but you're right you know offensively the way they run the fast break is is Caroline influenced in terms of you know a, a big run into the rim and another one trailing just you know playing two bigs and doing a lot of you know pick and pop pick and roll type stuff it's it's all very reminiscent of of Carolina with kind of Wes's twists and um adjustments to it so yeah you know definitely the the way they run the the fast break and kind of then use that to get into their the whole Carolina break motion offense type deal that's it's very reminiscent of you know what he learned from Roy Williams and, and it's got a you know he's got a, a little bit of a lightning quick point guard too because they used to have you know Ty Lawson and, and some of those guys from from the past like get it and go and beat everybody up the floor like you know i hope to see a lot of that going forward it, it's a shame mikey saunders doesn't have elite speed but you know that's <laughs> a topic for another day brian snow is still catching strays for <laughs> yeah. for his message board comment about saunders yeah. no you're right you know uh, i wrote this at one point but i asked wes about like the ty lawson comparison and with with mikey and he was basically like you know i'm not saying mikey's faster but he said the only Mikey is the only player he's ever been on a floor with that like reminded him of of Ty Lawson in, in terms yeah. of ball speed. So high praise, yeah, 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 definitely. And you know, West West would know because he had to guard him every day in practice for for a whole year. So I think that just tells you a, a lot about you know Mikey's uh, potential with the ball in his hand. I'm glad you guys brought up the the big man because a couple of times, uh, especially once they got into the bench a little bit in each half, you saw you know two big men on the floor at the same time when Davenport was on the on the bench. 
Odie was playing with another big guy up front, or, or I think at one point uh, Hayden Koval and Victor Lockham were on the court at the same time, kind of experimenting because so many teams don't have as much you know traditional size. But Lockham's so skilled on offense, you can kind of get away with that a little bit or see him where you can kind of push the limits and force teams to adjust because that kind of lineup will, will offer a lot of size that teams will have to counter uh, on the glass. And then in terms of defense as well, you know, Lockham had a nice block, I think, Koval had three or four blocks in limited minutes. Nobody played more than 27 minutes. Um, and having that kind of big man rotation at the four and the five spot, it gives you a lot of opportunity in terms of foul usage, making sure guys are aggressive, no one's going to be worn down, no one's going to be playing 35 minutes a night at the five spot. And it gave you a glimpse, too, into the future. After this season, you know, Koval and Ado are going to exhaust their eligibility. If Lockin can play close to what he did last night, I think the team, you know, people feel better in the future about the five spot knowing he'll be on the roster next year, getting some really valuable minutes and experience. And another thing that really stood out to me as well is, you know, Newman. Uh, his perimeter defense, I thought he had three or four opportunities, correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, to get steals and a buck on the other end. He got his hand on, on a number of deflections, whether it was someone dribbling the ball or a pass. He was really active with his hands, and I really thought his perimeter defense stood out to me. Um, and I think that's something they'll really be able to utilize going forward because he's, he's a high-level defensive player. And I think, you know, obviously he'll get some shots on offense. He hit one three that I think was ruled a two off a pass from, from Mike Saunders, and then Mike right before that, I think, or right after that, took a inbound off a made basket, got right to the rim and scored a layup. So that speed you guys are talking about, that definitely flashed a couple of times, and I thought it was a really good balance all around. So, Justin, when you were watching them kind of play, did you feel like the defense rebounding would be there and then the offense would just kind of be – it's not, you know, you can't point and say, oh, it's going to be these two guys that are carrying the offense. It's more like, you know, whoever gets gets a shot can just take it. Yeah, I mean, defensively, de- definitely the big man is what stood out to me last night, the the rim protection for sure. But, you know, it's funny. You talk about the depth. Like, they, they pulled – Abdul got a foul relatively early, and, and, and they pulled him out. And I was, like, looking to make sure, like, he didn't have two fouls. And, you know, because, you know, he's, he's coming out. And the, the reality is they just – they have enough depth. They don't even have to, you know, worry about two fouls or something like that. They can rotate guys in and out. Um, you know, I, I've heard only good things about Odia Guama. I, I think he's still a pretty raw guy who can get a lot better. But just his motor, um, you know, and it, especially in, in this conference, I mean, you're, you're going to be going against top-tier teams like Houston and Memphis. But just how hard he plays, like he's probably going to get close – he could get close to double-doubles games just because he's – you know, running the running the floor on the break and and getting rebounds and and things like that. So I, I was I was pretty impressed with him. Uh, offensively, I I think they're gonna need, especially as the season wears on and and they get into conference play, Davenport and DeJulius are gonna have to score. You know, not twenty points a night necessarily, but like those guys are probably gonna have to be double digit scores for them to have consistent success this season. But but I think you're right that it's not like a whatever Jaron's junior year where it was like. Jaron has to score 25 points and uh, you know he, he's going to kind of carry the team offensively I don't think it's anything that extreme those are the two guys though that stuck out to me is like they need to you know at, at least be a factor offensively and then you can get the nine points from from Mason Madsen or seven points from Victor Lockin Saunders you know those guys whether it's someone scoring 12 to 15 points or just a bunch of guys scoring six to eight points uh, I, I think that'll be fine offensively for them night in and night out especially if they play the way defensively West wants them to play do you see any comparisons now let's not look at bodies but like Mason as a sophomore and Jaron as a sophomore, they both were six six men off the bench. 
and both like whenever they check in the game like you could I could feel the energy of the arena you know go up even one more notch last night when Mason got in like they're they were both instant offense I mean like you know those first two shots that went down for Mason like I was not shocked at all that they went down and of course the crowd went nuts like you know, again, not not body size, but very very similar. Like offensively, like being able to, to just you know get points like like real quick. I know I know uh, Mason's not going to drive to the basket as much, but you know, just getting buckets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was gonna say like I I think they're obviously don't have necessarily similar offensive games, but I think what you're talking about, and honestly, you could attribute it to Jeremiah too, is like no conscience like no fear and and mason's like that he's you know whether he's coming off the bench or no matter what the game situation is like he's not going to be afraid to pull the trigger and you know jeremiah davenport's like that too you know these guys get talked about as like irrational confidence guys sometimes and that can kind of have like a pejorative connotation but you know i just think if if jeremiah davenport is 0 for 10 in a game and he's got an open three to like win the game at the buzzer like he he has no hesitation. He's like he thinks it's gonna go in. Uh, you know he's gonna let it fly every time. Mason has a little bit of that too. And honestly, I think that's a good thing. I think it fits in West Miller's system too. You know he said this. I've talked to multiple people, so it's not just like a coach speak thing. Like if you screw up on defense, if you don't play hard on defense you're not going to play for Wes, but he does give a lot of leeway on offense. You know, if you take a bad shot or you turn the ball over, you're not going to be looking over your shoulder, feeling like you're going to get yanked, you know, out of the game. And honestly, you know, I mean, I think there was a little bit of that with Brandon. There was certainly some of that, I think with, with Mick Cronin. Um, Trevor Moore. Yeah. yeah. So he would look over his shoulder every time he missed. And I, I just think Wes, and he's told them this, but again, it's, you know, it's one thing for a coach to say it, but it's another thing to hear it from other people is like, he will, he will give you some leeway, some latitude offensively, as long as you're, you're playing hard and doing, you know, doing what you're supposed to on defense. And so I think that's very freeing for guys like Mason, like Jeremiah, like Mikey Saunders, you know, when he wants to attack the basket or like David Julius, who kind of has a lot of all around game. Uh, And I think that it certainly looked like it last night. And I don't expect that to change moving forward. Something else that occurred to me, and I know there was a comment about this during the press conference after the game where, where Wes Miller had said that he had lunch with Mike Saunders Jr. the day before the game and said he earned the right to start, but he feels like him coming off the bench is better for the team right now, and Mike was totally on board with that, which in itself is awesome, but something else in watching the game with that lineup, Micah Adams-Woods is a very steady player, who will move the ball, he can guard multiple positions, he doesn't make mistakes, and he's tremendous from the free throw line. And when Mike comes in, he adds a different dimension. When Mason comes in, he's a guy you immediately have to target on the other team as someone who can space the floor and shoot the three. If Hayden Koval comes in, he's someone you have to tag as a shot blocker underneath, and he can hit a three if he's open. Victor Locken, very skilled, really passed the ball, he can shoot a three. So the guys that came in off the bench really bring something different than the guys that are replacing when those some of the starters come off the floor. You know, Abdullah Doe is going to be a shot blocker rebounder, but he's not really going to score outside of six to eight feet from the hoop, and that's fine. But the guys that come in for him, they can. So it seems like with the way the roster was constructed, you've got a lot, a lot of different interchangeable pieces that can bring different dimensions to mix and match depending on matchups, and also just seeing what lineup's going to work better on a given day than the starting lineup. And I really felt that 
that change when Mikey came in, that speed element really uh, made the game shift. And when Mason hit two threes, like Jeff said, you just got the feeling every time he took a shot, it was going to go in. And, and that can have a tremendous effect on a team that's still going to be finding their identity with so many new pieces, a new coaching staff, a new style. It's going to take some time. I'm not going to judge this team based on one game. you got people on message boards calling Odie like Kenya Martin his junior season. I'm like, wait a minute, it's been one game, guys. I'll judge this team a bit more once we get through like the non-conference schedule. Speaking of the schedule, Georgia's coming back, and that was a really rough game last season at Georgia, and they're coming in on Saturday after a seven-point win over, I think, the Ken Palm 309-ranked team, Florida International University, and they eked out a seven-point win. Yeah, I mean, revenge game for Tom Crean. Uh, Wes Miller has to make sure he doesn't get shivved in the handshake line for, for stealing <laughs> Chad Dollar and, and Jake Thielen uh, away from Georgia. So I think that might be the, the main concern. Um, no, it'll be interesting because I think, you know, there was obviously a lot of turmoil and turnover with Cincinnati this offseason. I think Georgia lost their top nine, like, scores or, or minute players from, from the roster last season. So, yeah, th- that game did not go well for – uh, for Cincinnati last year, but Georgia is going to be even more unrecognizable than than Cincinnati is when you compare to that game last season. So, I, I think it'll be interesting because yes, you know, I, certainly based on that and the, kind of the way they played the other night, it doesn't seem like the same Georgia team from last year. But like this is still an SEC team with SEC caliber athletes, so it's going to be a little bit different than playing Evansville. Um, I think Cincinnati will certainly benefit from being at home. But I agree that after you know Evansville's a, a good mid-major team you know make no mistake but after kind of cruising to an easy victory last night i I think it'll be interesting to see how these two teams match up and how cincinnati looks uh, against georgia just a couple days later you know the good thing about the georgia game from last year i don't think anybody remembers it (laughs) remember it was the it was the title game wasn't it yeah Yeah. i'll say i i don't really remember it and that's because i i wasn't there and i'm i sure i went back and watched it but I probably didn't have to watch too closely based no, on how. No. No, I, I don't. I don't think uh, many people. It's going to be in their the top. Uh, I don't know what ten watching uh, experiences. Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, did uh, Wes? He commented on the uh, on the arena. Like, did anybody tell him like you know that's really nothing compared to what he's really going to experience? So that's what I thought was interesting is we, after the game, we talked to Wes and we talked to then JD and, and Mason Madsen together. And like Mason was kind of blown away the same way Wes was. And, you know, not that like Jeremiah was unimpressed, but he, he knows what that arena looks like when it's really popping. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of interesting to see, you know, Wes was just, you know, this is a guy who he's played at Carolina. So he knows what good crowds are like. And he knows that a Tuesday night against Evansville non-conference game, like you don't necessarily have high expectations. And so it was kind of cool to see him and, and Mason, you know, who was here last year, but didn't get to experience that uh, kind of their reactions to it. But it was also kind of funny to, to realize that Jeremiah was like, these guys don't even understand, you know, yeah. what, what this game's going to be like when it's uh, a conference game uh, against Wichita or Memphis or something like that. I think I saw Lepore tweet something about it too, and, I'm, and there, I think all the comments were like, "Yeah, just you wait, uh, it's going to be great." And I think Saturday will be better, obviously, than oh, you know yeah. than last night was, and there was still, you know, I thought what ten thousand fans who were who were really into it last night. So, yeah. 
Yeah, kind of. A, it's like the difference between like a sellout opening uh, weekend against Miami, Ohio, or the week after against Murray State versus like last Saturday at homecoming when game day is in town. And just the noticeable difference in the football stadium versus uh, an earlier in the season home game. And you know, the, the crowd and the fan support is something that's been mentioned to me by a lot of the recruits that I've spoken to. And today's the first day of the basketball early signing period. And, and Josh Reed and Sage Tolentino have already signed their letters of intent with Cincinnati. And I know that was something that really stood out to the those players, the, the social media presence and, and how much support that the teams have at Cincinnati. And uh, Justin, I know that there was a piece you had written. Um, I read something this morning you wrote a few months ago about the apparel deal and that this might not be there might not be a better time for Cincinnati to be looking to potentially, you know, find another athletic clothing supplier with the Under Armour deal largely done with the, uh, you know, it's it's through 2024, but I think either side can kind of get out of it if, if another opportunity came along. And, I mean, if you're looking at potentially finding a new home for, uh, you know, Nike, Reebok, or someone else, you know, this, the, the football team is still ranked number two and the number five in the most recent college football playoff. Like, is that something that's that kind of stood out to you about about that aspect of it and, and just – you know, I think I read that 200%, uh, the sales are up 200% or something like that for athletic clothing for Cincinnati uh, the latter part of this year because of the football success. Is, there, has it, is that something that you've looked into at all or kind of uh, revisited from that article you wrote a few months ago about the Under Armour deal? Yeah, so, and I'd have to look back because I forget the specifics on like when Cincinnati can technically get out of like the extended different deal they signed with Under Armour. Yeah, I think the upshot is unfortunately for Cincinnati and for a lot of programs, like they're never going to see a, a deal like the one they had w- with Under Armour, you know, those, what was it like a 10 year, 50 million, like that, that kind of money is just not going to be attached to shoe deals anymore for colleges. Unless, you know, unless maybe we're talking about like Kentucky or, or, you know, basketball or something like that. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, that they can certainly point to things like apparel sales, um, and and just kind of the general standing of, of the programs, especially football, to maybe, you know, like bump up some of the, the, the money they're getting because, the you know, my guess is like Nike seems to be the natural, you know, and we can leave the Jordan discussion because who knows, you know, what would ever happen with that. But, you know, Nike seems to be the natural fit because both Wes and, and Luke Fickle have kind of previous ties to that. Um, and, and I think... It, you know, performance apparel wise, like in game stuff, especially with football, Nike is the preferred, um, uh, you know, outfitter. But I don't, I, I'll be curious. I don't know exactly kind of what impact it would have, you know, contract wise. But I, I certainly think, like you said, for, for a lot of things, apparel included, like it's, it's a, it's a good time to, to be Cincinnati Bearcats. Don't you think that? Uh, I've had a, uh, a DM conversation with Anthony DeFino just talking about, you know, the lack of just overall gear out there. And I just think that the fan base in general for both football and basketball, they're starving for more and more and more. And it just doesn't seem like, at least to me and some of the people that I've spoken with, that you know, it's just not there. And I don't know if that's Under Armour, if that's, you know, the pandemic or whatever it is, but I, I think that everybody's, you know, desperate for something different and, and, and just more of, you know, the throwback logos and the current stuff and just, you know, just flood the market because, like, this is the best time for them to cash in on it. Yeah, what's the, what's the, the company that 
did like the shorts recently. You know oh, what I'm yeah, talking about? Or whatever that yeah, is. from what I heard, that went really well. Um, you know, I, I I don't know what the deal. I don't know what situation is right now with like home field, but I know that's been talked about and and is a, a you know a possibility in the future that they would um, you know allow home field to kind of use some of the the throwback logos and stuff like that. And, and I know, look, I mean, your the, the readers of BCJ and the listeners of this podcast are well versed in some of the marketing and branding. Um, issues uh with with the athletic department i do think this current administration anthony defino leading that charge is trying to change some of that um and so i I think we will see that whether it's something like the main apparel outfitter like nike or whoever they sign with or whether it's things like home field 199 and and, and those types of things uh i think there's a recognition that like cincinnati fans will come out for that stuff um but also that the university you know that's free advertising if, if you can kind of you know, go with reputable companies and, and allow, allow them to use your trademark and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah definitely some intriguing possibilities there. Now, now shifting the focus over to football, um, there was a pretty big commitment earlier today from perhaps uh, the top target and, and certainly the top target on the quarterback board for the 22 class when uh, Tennessee quarterback Luther Richardson issued his verbal commitment on Twitter in, in the perhaps the least – I don't want to say least exciting, but like a lot of these players have like graphics and all this stuff yeah. and like a video with like a you know reveal about who they're picking. And he just took a screenshot of from his iPhone about his notes about his commitment, and then that was it because he's, he's got a very muted social media presence. But he was someone the staff was on to. And, and Justin, I know you referenced on Twitter earlier this morning your piece you wrote a few months ago when he visited for that midnight event when the the dead period was lifted a few months ago and he was he was on campus and he's made very few visits he doesn't really do many of the camps other than the elite 11 stuff that he did but he's perhaps an underrated recruit by the recruiting services because of the lack of camp exposure and other things that he doesn't really attend so he finally commits and and gives this class their 18th commitment and their their quarterback in this class what can you tell us about luther richardson and how do you see the rest of this class kind of filling out as they're getting to the point where there's only maybe a you know a half dozen spots or less left for the 22 recruiting cycle? Yeah, I mean, and I would definitely encourage back in June, uh, Bruce Feldman, you know, kind of big, huge national writer for us at The Athletic, wrote a, a big feature on Luther Richardson um, that is definitely worth checking out for, for Bearcats fans because he goes into kind of all the stuff you referenced, which is, you know, so Richardson plays for Trent Dilfer at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville. Trent Dilfer also is kind of like the the main evaluator coach of the Elite 11 camp competition thing. And and so Luther like wanted to focus on that and wanted to focus on his high school season. So he didn't go to all these camps all over the country. He didn't do a ton of visits. And, you know, as Bruce writes, like that's where a lot of these scouts are that, you know, and, and recruiting scouts analysts that impact the rankings so he's kind of a mid-level three-star like i had it up earlier i don't i forget what he was on 247 but he's kind of like in the middle of the class but anyone that kind of knows or or has followed this kid basically just says like he's totally kind of under the radar and, and underrated and bruce's piece a lot about that and i know the cincinnati coaches feel that way like they they feel like they have potentially gotten you know diamond in the rough might be a little too strong but just got a player that is much better than maybe his like you know pretty solid recruiting ranking suggests right now um you know he has a, a cannon arm um that's kind of what he's known for and he, he he's just kind of a no-nonsense old school kid in that he doesn't really do a lot of social media you know i remember think when bruce wrote his story over the summer at that time 
Luther had like three total tweets, and and he's one got, of them was a link to his. Now. Yeah, there you go. So he's he's, he's up seven. to seven, and the, basically the reason he did it is because someone told him like you have to start a Twitter so you can link to your huddle page so that people can can find it. So that was kind of like the only reason he did it. He, he's obviously not very active on there, um, and so yeah, this was the the quarterback they had prioritized. You know, they were in on Gavin Wimsat. You know back in the the winter and spring and you know ever since he committed to Rutgers like I think Luther's the only one they've really prioritized or even offered uh and and they've been on it and they've gotten him to come up and visit a couple times which is not an easy feat with with this kid and uh and he was there on Saturday and clearly came away uh, with a good experience and uh I think they feel like they have a really good one for for 2022 and for the rest of the cycle I think there's a couple, you know, guys out there that they are, are going to try and nail down either before or maybe just after the the early signing period, and I'm sure they'll leave some spots open for uh, for for transfers. But I think they feel really good with kind of the the foundation that they have right now. There's another under the radar quarterback doing kind of well that you see right now, don't you think? Like like Des Des didn't come in as the four star. Was he? A, he's, was he a he's, he's not very under radar anymore. Yeah, well, no, I think saying, like when he, when he came in. Like, yeah. Was, oh no, you're totally he right. Said like Richardson, you know, kind of under the radar because he didn't do all the camps. You know, it's kind of working out for another under the radar guy here. Well, and you know, don't forget the quarterbacks coach Gino Gadoli. Like he he's a big part of Des's development, and he was a huge part of of Luther's recruitment. And, you know, Des is a is a different quarterback than, than Gino was. I think there's probably a lot more similarities in terms of on-field game between Richardson and and, and Gino. And I know Gino was huge in, in terms of getting Luther to, to, to commit and through his whole recruitment. And, yeah, if you can point to like, oh, yeah, I've, I've coached this guy. Oh, this also this guy who's starting at Eastern Michigan. I, I re- you know, helped recruit and coach him too. And the highest-rated recruit in program history, Evan Prater, also, you know, I, I recruited and have coached him. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it's a understandable, you know, why maybe that would be attractive to, to someone like Richardson. And I think if there's one thing we can look at with this football staff and, and the coaches they have, they've taken a lot of players that were, you know, they, they've gotten their share of four stars. Obviously, you know, Josh Wiley and Leonard Taylor were four stars and Malik Van was as well and a handful of other players, but then you have quite a few three-stars. You know, a guy like Derek Forrest, who the staff prioritized when they got hired, and, you know, my Jay Sanders was a three-star, and Joel DeBlanco was a three-star, and, you know, guys, Deshaun Pace was a three-star, and he, he's, he might have the most interceptions on the team, and he's only a, a sophomore. So I think this staff has earned the benefit of the doubt in terms of their evaluation, and I think just in general, it's so much more difficult to evaluate and rank football players versus basketball because basketball the top players play against each other in, in high school and on AAU and all these events all the time and in football it's much more difficult to do that because there's 11 players on offense 11 players on defense and maybe it's a seven on seven camp it's much tougher to project that and, and and rate those kinds of players I think and with football this staff certainly knows what they're looking for in terms of the makeup of a player and how they approach things and there's so many good players within a 100 mile radius of Cincinnati and then to be able, I mean, they're not, now look where they're bringing in players from. They're, they're getting players from Texas, and they're getting players from Tennessee, and they're getting players from Michigan, and they've mined Illinois and Indiana as well as any school in the region. And those things really stand out. And, you know, Jeff, you know there's so many good players in Cincinnati, and the hometown hero thing has been huge. But when you look at this class, there's not quite as many local players in the 22 class, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think so. Um 
Is it the uh, the cornerback from Coleraine? Is the is the one? That's yeah, and, you know. But yeah. even so, you're right. There's not a ton okay, of Cincinnati, I, but yeah, Derek Shepard's from from Dayton. Um, they have a couple Pickerington, uh, whatever it's Columbus kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another Saint, you know, Saint Francis de Sales where where Fickle's from. So there's a there are a handful of Ohio, and you know, you kind of just mentioned that in terms of evaluation. That was that's Fickle's reputation, right? Like at Ohio State, he was the guy who found the underrated three stars and a lot of times at Ohio State he kind of had to like stand on the table for we should take this kid well now at Cincinnati like uh, yeah they just take him and and they're you know he, he's proven to be a really good talent evaluator especially within kind of the state of Ohio and, and the surrounding region and I think that's one of the biggest reasons why he's had so much success here well they're gonna have to they are gonna have to spread out just a little bit because you know going to the big 12 you know, I mean, they're really going to have to get a few more fours, a few more four stars in, in every class just to be able to compete, you know, as John Cunningham says, from day one. Uh, this is going to have to be a regular thing. Like, it's a great time to, to get on board with this program. We're going to see, you know, recruiting ratings just go through the roof. And not that, that that's the only thing that matters, but you combine that with the great staff that he's put together and uh, everything just, you know, is looking looking fantastic for the future. Now, speaking of the future, Jeff, uh, there was an article that someone sent to me regarding the location and that they're going to start fundraising and maybe announce something next week regarding an indoor practice facility and that they want to be, as John Cunningham has stated, you know, day one ready for the Big 12. And, and I think the biggest difference on the surface and that people have pointed out to me is when it comes to football, it's depth. A lot of these teams, you know, in, in multiple leagues, well below the P5 level, there's talent on, on the starting, you know, both sides of the ball starting, but it's the depth. And I think on, like, on the line, on the O-line, on the D-line, you need to build up the depth there. And they've started to do that these last couple of cycles. They've really started to increase their recruiting in this particular class on the, in the defensive backfield. There's like, there's like five or six guys that could project as corners and safeties in this class, and that's a, that's a third of the class. And then, yeah. uh, and they've they've definitely targeted offensive line the last two cycles, bringing in tackles. You know, I think the guy that I'm most excited about. It seems weird, but the most excited you know player I'm most excited to see develop is probably Ethan Green, a tackle, because he's he's got that wrestling background. If anyone has like the mentality and the same kind of background in high school that Luke Fickle did as a player, it would probably be Ethan Green. And I think you you're seeing when they play better teams. It's the difference at, at tackle and, and some of those key spots in the trenches that can really be the difference. And the defensive line has been tremendous this year. And some of those guys, like Curtis Brooks, came in, and, and those guys that weren't highly rated players, and you know, uh, you know, Jabari Taylor had a big, you know, guys like that. So I think that's something they have to look at in terms of the Big Twelve and jumping that level and just getting to the point where yes, they'll need some more four stars and and really just using everything from this season, and this, whether it's the CFP ranking or, or, or you know, number two in, in the AP poll, to their advantage in terms of merchandise sales, getting recruits to visit that you wouldn't have been able to get before, to really generate the momentum and use it going forward as a springboard into the Big 12. Yeah, I think you're speaking Luke's language when you're talking about the, the guy that excites you the most is the tackle. Line-driven program, Line-driven program, all right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody else is uh, that excited. I, you know, obviously the, the quarterbacks, the, the skill players, the wide receivers, and, and DBs and stuff like that are, you know, going to be the ones that 
excite most of us. I I know who sent you that article. We don't need to talk about it, but I, I did I didn't get a chance to read it. Are they are they talking about making an announcement like that soon, like next week? I think about like the fundraising push for it because I think it's going to be at the, okay. the location of the current bubble and the Sheikley kind of area because it's like where else could you potentially put an indoor practice facility? I know there was a debate about that and. I don't know the the city as well as you guys do. Like I know there's been talk of, of Burnett Woods and like places that yeah, are off limits they'd have to buy. Out. Yeah, so I mean for it to be there, because I mean I think that the charm of the campus and you know Justin, you spent so much time there and talked to a lot of national people. The football stadium being right there next to the basketball arena, the baseball stadium, that stands out to almost every recruit when you read any articles for football or basketball. How everything's centrally located in the center of campus. Yeah, I mean the the Varsity Village I think is a is a big selling point and. You know, if we're being honest, I'm, you know, uh, I'm sure that probably the football team wouldn't mind having a, a bubble kind of off on its own. But I think they also understand the benefit of of if it's being close there. And, yeah, I mean, I've, I've obviously reported that they're I think they're leaning towards keeping it on Shakely. I don't think that's a done deal. I think they're going to try and do some, um, you know surveys or, or whatever to kind of figure out what the cost would be what other options are but you're right you know no matter where it is that they they want to get geared up on on fundraising so that's not surprising that um they're they're kind of putting out some some information or there's some information getting out that they're going to start doing that that soon i, I, I that kind of tracks with everything i've heard too yeah like they've got to get this ready to go for the start of the big 12 i think um somebody somebody on bcj said three years but i I'd be surprised if they didn't, you know, maybe put shovels in the ground, you know, in the springtime. Yeah, I don't know timeline-wise, and, you know, that stuff always ends up taking yeah. longer than, than you want it to or think it will. But I think you're right that, the, you know, the sooner they can get it going, the sooner it'll be ready once they're in the Big 12, and the sooner they can actually start selling it to recruits and uh, boosters or whoever is, like, a, a real thing. So even if it's not ready to go, you know, if they get in for the 2023 season, I have a hard time believing the like, you know, practice facility would be ready for that off season. But you know, if, if it's moving and it's, it's going to be pretty close, like that just helps the whole entire timeline. They've got to do whatever it takes to keep their coach happy because, you know, like it or not, you know, if that, if that Penn state job opens up, I don't think we need to go into this too much, but like they're, you know, everybody's talked about the, 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 the big jobs that, that would be attractive to him, but, whatever it takes to keep that man happy you know we as a fan base need to do it (laughs) now something i wanted to touch on too justin the last you know last couple of games um for cincinnati been a a bit closer than people expected you know even against tulsa which didn't you know didn't have quite as much talent as it did a year ago on both sides of the ball the, the team really struggled especially run defense there was some uncharacteristic drops um I feel like in some ways when I watch the offense play, every single snap, it's it's almost as if they have the weight of their college football playoff ranking uh, on the line and that they don't want to kind of do too much to mess with that. And it seems like it's trickled down a little bit to the team and they're not playing with the same kind of mentality in some ways when I watch the games as they were earlier in the season. And granted, they're still winning these games and that's fine. But in order to break into that top four, you know, they're going to a, a pretty downtrodden USF program Friday night for a game that'll be on national TV. But USF ended up putting up a bigger fight last week uh, against Houston. I think one of the guys returned two kickoffs for touchdowns, and they were able to run the ball really well. And that's been kind of the Achilles heel these last three games against Tulsa, Tulane, and Navy. 
So in, in your viewings of, of the team, what are, what's your sense? Because you wrote an article earlier this week documenting some of the defense of the, the run defense issues and how they might try and stem the tide a little bit. What are you kind of seeing and, and how they might address that uh, starting with USF on Friday night? Yeah, I mean, I think you're uh, kind of – take on on the offenses right i don't think it's it's any one thing but i think you could point to um you know okay just the kind of the target on their back and that other teams are going to be more willing to you know throw the kitchen sink at you and, and and give them your best shot added with yeah the you know increased attention and pressure that they're they've gotten i talked to somebody within the program a couple weeks ago who like they referenced that like the, these guys have a lot on their shoulders and you know kind of the way it was put to me is like that's not an excuse you can't say you know that explains it all away but it is a reason like you can't just ignore it as something that doesn't have an impact on them even if you don't want it to or it shouldn't uh and i think you could you know the point to some of the de- defensive struggles and and the way teams are running the ball is probably weighing on the offense a little bit too because because they're getting a couple less possessions every game. They're, they're not on the field as much. And so, yeah, I think that same kind of pressure of the the weight of our ranking and national standing, that just increases even more. And, and you could turn it around and say a lot of the same stuff on defense. So I think what they just need, and unfortunately haven't been able to do the past couple of weeks, is like they need that game like the Temple game or the UCF game where they can kind of remind themselves what it's like when they really just bury a team. And – it's it's not going to be easy you know as as good or bad as usf has been this season they're not just going to go down there and and i don't think run all over them on a short week but it it almost feels like if if they could kind of do that before a big smu game it would reinstill some of that that confidence and and maybe you know um not desperation but like you know just turn some of that pressure into good pressure on them it seems like they are trying to score 10 points every possession. I mean, that's that's what it just feels like to me. And and I can't imagine how much pressure they do feel. I mean, they have to be perfect. Like as a G5 school, they're not allowed to to struggle against anybody. Like Alabama struggled, Ohio State struggled, Michigan State lost, Oregon struggled. Like these teams struggle every week, yet there's only one team that is under the microscope. Like that just has to weigh on them so much like they're, you're not allowed to struggle at all you have to win every game by 30 and it has to be you know an absolutely perfect game otherwise they're going to be ridiculously scrutinized do you think it's 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 it can't be too bad because they're they're being discussed in almost every talk show or your podcast talk show or tv radio like it's good it's good for the program but as the uh, for the for the players themselves it's got to it's got to weigh on them don't you think yeah and i just i think it's an adjustment i you know I, I, it's something they want it's something the program wants but like just an example so pretty much for football there's like one you know tuesday is is kind of media day where they do press conference and they they'll do interviews after practice or something like that in the past even when they've been a top 25 team or or winning 11 games it's you know people like me and Chad and, and the local TV stations down there asking them questions that they see every week. Well, this year, just about every week, the past couple of months, there's been like big time national writer who's who's in town. And granted, I don't think the the players like care about um, you know Ralph Russo or or Pete Thamel like 
you know, and how many Twitter followers they have. But what I think it is, it's like, oh, we have a little extra. You're doing a couple extra sideline reporter interviews or, you know, we're going to have you sit down with this national person. It's not like, oh, that is in the back of their mind and that's why they struggle against Tulane. But it's just one more thing that's kind of added on their plate that week. And even subconsciously, I think it just – it, it alerts them to the gravity of what they're doing. It kind of puts a little more pressure and, and just, you know, you know, scheduling conflicts on, on their plate. And again, none of these are excuses, but they're all reasons. And I think you're seeing a team that um, is kind of coming to grips with that, but also in real time adjusting to that. And they certainly don't want to turn it down. That's what they're working for. But that doesn't mean that it just is an automatic flip. They switch either. Yeah. It's gotta be a hell of a lot more fun than going into Last couple of weeks with a you know six and four or six and three record, absolutely. Or just you know, basically working hard and, and winning eleven or twelve games and going to the Birmingham Bowl because you don't have yeah. that respect. Like they would certainly have this, but again, that doesn't mean that it's just an automatic easy thing to to accomplish. Yeah. If, I, if I never hear the term again, style points, it won't be oh, yeah. too soon. I just uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's tough, and I think everything you guys are saying is pretty accurate. And I just hope that they're like as as Fickle said. Going to the locker room after a win, even if it was close than they expected, they still won the game, and the players are acting like they're, you know, they're at a funeral or something like that, and that they somehow, you know, let let the coaching staff down or, or you know, didn't didn't win the game. So I'm hoping that they, you know, they're still student athletes. These are 18 to 22, 23 year old, you know, young men that are giving everything they have, and, and they're doing all this, you know, on, on a G5 budget. And what they're doing is remarkable, and it's important to enjoy the journey as it's come along and not just focus on the end result which you might not have control over so you have to enjoy it while it's happening and this is you know the best season the football teams arguably ever had now i hate to cut this short gentlemen but i do have to do have to go pick up my my older son here in a minute but i want to thank justin for uh for joining us uh this afternoon and and giving us his time and his insight uh for basketball and football And, and jeff as always it's uh it's great to do it Thanks, sir. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, fellas. It's always a blast. All right. Thanks again.